0: Sorry, not John. Jonah. You look down at it, and maybe it looks like John at a first glance, but it is Jonah that we're going to be reading from. Jonah chapter 1, and <clears throat> we'll be reading the entire chapter, just 17 verses, but we'll read the whole thing. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, for they could not, or but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, Thus the reading of God's word, and may he add his blessing to it. Uh, As we have seen, uh, the book of Jonah has several unique features to it among the minor prophets and among the prophets generally. Uh, Most of the prophets prophesied to the people of Israel, whether to the northern kingdom, that is called the kingdom of Israel, or to the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. Uh, Some of these prophets, among the major prophets, uh, but also some of the minor prophets, also had isolated individual oracles for the other nations that surrounded Israel as well. But for the most part, they confined their prophesying, their ministry, their teaching, their preaching to the people of Israel. Um, We find a few exceptions to this, however. The book of Nahum, for instance, is called an oracle concerning Nineveh. Yeah, that's right, the same Nineveh. Um, that is mentioned here in the book of Jonah. But the entire book of Nahum is a prophecy uh, of woe, of judgment against the city of Nineveh, um, which appears about 100 years after the events of the book of Jonah. So Nahum is a bit of an exception as well in that it's not directed to the, people, to the people of Israel, but to the people of a foreign nation. Likewise, the book of Obadiah is also an oracle concerning a foreign nation, a long-standing enemy of Israel to the south. Uh, the nation of Edom. But both Nahum and Obadiah lived and ministered in the Holy Land, and they were speaking outward, as it were, to the people of Edom in one case and the people of Nineveh on the other. Even though they prophesied concerning foreign nations, they weren't commissioned to actually go and speak to them directly face to face. But Jonah was called to actually go to a foreign nation, to a foreign city, to Nineveh to go there and to preach and to warn them of impending judgment in order that they might hear the warning and be moved to repent and receive the Lord's mercy. Calvin's observations, I think, on on this are very interesting. He said that it was likely that that God sent Jonah to Nineveh because God was wearied with the obstinacy of Israel. God had sent the prophets to Israel time and time again, and the people of Israel refused to listen to them. Um, and Israel, for the most part, rejected them, but God, in essence, is going to use a foreign nation as an example of true repentance, or at least a proper response to God, and through that would shame the people of Israel. I send my prophets to you time and time again, and you refuse to listen to me. I'm going to send a prophet to a foreign nation. They will repent, and that makes your sin all the more inexcusable. And I think that is one of the lessons that we uh, learn and one of the reasons why God called Jonah to preach to Nineveh. Now, we find the call of Jonah in verses 1 and 2. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Nineveh was an ancient Assyrian city located on the Tigris River in upper Mesopotamia. This map shows the extent of the Assyrian Empire at the the time of Jonah, uh, with Nineveh nearly at its center, and the ruins of that city can be found today in the city of Mosul, Iraq. Uh, right in the heart of Mosul Iraq, you find not the entire uh, ancient city of Nineveh, but you find the remains of a significant portion of the ancient city of Nineveh. Nineveh was referred to in our text as that great city, that great city." It's also described this way in chapter 3 and verse 2, and again in chapter 4 and verse 11. That great city, Nineveh. This can refer either to its size or to its importance, or which is more likely to both. It was a very large city, and it was very important, very influential in the region. Uh, Later in the book, the Lord says that there were more than 120,000 people, aside from all of the livestock that was... uh, a part of the city of Nineveh as well. And this was an extremely large city by ancient standards. Uh, we might think of it as a relatively modest or moderate sized city in our day when you think of the large cities on the, the coasts and, and various places around the world. But in the ancient world, 120,000 people was extraordinarily large. It was also a city of very long standing. It was mentioned as far back as Genesis 10 when the earth was still young. It's mentioned in connection with a man by the name of Nimrod, uh, who was the first to be a powerful ruler over a vast empire. In Genesis 10, verses 10 and 11, it says, The beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and he built Nineveh. So the foundations of the city of Nineveh were laid by this somewhat mysterious figure referred to um, in Genesis chapter 10 called Nimrod. Nineveh continued to exert an enormous influence in the region for a very long time. Many centuries after its founding, the Lord told Jonah to go there and call out against it is how it's worded here in the text. That means to denounce it, uh, to, to pronounce judgment against it, to rebuke it. He says, for their evil has come up before me. That's, an, that's a pretty ominous statement. Their evil has come up before me. The idea is that their evil was so great that the Lord took a special notice of it. Of all of the evil that was taking place in the world, the evil of Nineveh was so great that the Lord took special notice of it. Well, What was their evil? Well, history suggests that their evil consisted in extreme brutality, extreme cruelty, They sought to prosper by the conquest and plunder of their neighbors. Now, they weren't unique in this as far as ancient kingdoms go. Many ancient peoples attempted to do the same thing. But the Ninevites or the Assyrians were unique, it seems, in terms of the extent to which they employed torture and terror. In the book of the prophet Nahum, a hundred years after Jonah, the Lord speaks of Nineveh's unceasing evil. And he says, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. The bloody city, woe to it, full of lies and plunder. It was a notoriously violent and rapacious regime. And they were proud of it, too. They depicted their acts of cruelty in the artwork that they left behind them and have been discovered by archaeologists. For instance, in this picture, you see a base relief of Assyrian soldiers trampling over their enemies. You can see them lying on the ground under the horse's hooves. Now, there's nothing unique about this. It would be a common enough feature of warfare. But where the Assyrians were notoriously brutal was in their treatment of captives. Here's another base relief depicting the torture and death of captured enemy soldiers. On the left, you see an Assyrian cutting, cutting off the hands and feet of a captive with the severed body parts shown below him. Just to the right, you see a man impaled on a stake. And again, his hands and feet are cut off below him. And on the far right, you see the severed heads of captive soldiers mounted on the walls and gates of the city. And again, these are things that they're boasting about. They're carving this in stone to be left for thousands of years for others to see as memorial of what they thought of as great valor, great glory in terms of their ability to inflict terror and torture upon people. Here you see on the left an Assyrian soldier with three captives, Notice how he's controlling them. He's used a, a ring or a hook to pierce their noses or their lips, and he's leading them around with a rope like cattle. And he's using a spear to gouge out the eyes of the man on his knees, a very common practice among the Assyrians and some other ancient peoples as well. And on the right, you see a stone slab with a relief depicting two captives impaled through the chest. Scenes like these are very common in the archaeological remains of the, that come from Assyria. One Assyrian ruler boasted in these words, he says, I captured many troops alive. I cut off some of their arms and hands. I cut off of others their noses, ears, and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many troops. I made one pile of the living and one of heads. I hung their heads on trees around the city. These are the kinds of things that we've seen in recent years in the Middle East with ISIS. ISIS. You may have seen in some reachers of the Internet, there are videos and pictures that show what ISIS does to their captives. And it reads exactly like this. From the same region of the world, right in the heartland of of modern-day countries of Syria and Iraq. Another method of inflicting torture and death was to skin their victims alive. That's what you see being depicted here as people are holding the captives down and they're preparing to use a knife to, to skin them. When a Syrian ruler memorialized a victory over an attempted revolt by inscribing these words on a monument, he said, "I have made a pillar facing the city gate and have skinned all the rebel leaders. I have clothed the pillar with their skins." I let the leaders of the conquered cities be skinned and clothe the city walls with their skins. The captives I have killed by the sword and flung on the dung heap. The little boys and girls were burnt. Now, it's hard to imagine for us what goes on in the hearts and minds of people that could lead them to do such terrible things. I mean, I can't hardly conceive of it. We have seen it, as I said, recently in what ISIS and some other radical groups have done, and I've just I, it takes my breath away. And I think, how far must you have fallen into darkness to even think about doing such things, let alone to actually do them? And so it's hard for us to imagine how this could happen, but it has happened. It did happen. Nineveh and Assyria was known for this. This was the brutal status quo of Assyrian culture. By the way, this brings up what I think is a rather important point, and we don't have the time to fully develop the thought just now, but it's this, that not all cultures are equal, nor the religions that lie behind them. Today we're told that we mustn't say that one culture is better than another or worse than another, but the people who tell us this are ignorant of history and they're blind to the world around them. As I say, we don't have the time to develop this thought any further just now, but it should be obvious to anyone who has more than two brain cells to rub together uh, that, that some cultures are better, not because innately the people or a particular race is better than another, but because of the penetration of the gospel in certain areas. You know, the Europeans before the penetration of the gospel in Europe were just as barbaric. There's nothing inherent about being a European or of European extract. Because before the gospel came to the Europeans, they were just as barbaric as anything that we are reading about here. The cruel practices of the Assyrians were, or are unpleasant things to think about. <clears throat> but it does give you, I think, some sense of the evil for which God determined to punish the Ninevites. It wasn't for simple garden variety of sins, mere peccadilloes, but for the monstrous atrocities that these scenes represent. Now, to be fair, the Assyrians were not the only ancient peoples, or people who did such things to their enemies, but none seemed to have done them with as much uh, consistency and with as much cruelty and on such a wide scale. And the thing is, they didn't hide it either. It wasn't something that they wished to keep secret, as if they were ashamed of it. But on the contrary, as we've seen, they celebrated it by inscribing it in stone and leaving it as monuments to their great valor, as they would seem to think of it. They displayed it for all the world to see. Really, it was a point of pride for them. It's no wonder that our Lord said, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, denounce it, rebuke it, pronounce judgment against it, for their evil has come up to me. Such evil cannot go unnoticed by God. By the way, violence is one of the greatest evils that anyone can commit. It's not always understood that it was on account of not on account of sin in general, but on account of violence in particular, that God destroyed the ancient world with a flood. In Genesis chapter 6, it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth." Again, not just ordinary common sins, but in particular, the sin, the violence. The earth is filled with violence, and it was on that account that God determined to punish it. David says, the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty man. And again, his soul hates the one who loves violence. Now, it's not very often that you read in Scripture that God hates something or someone. But here it says that the Lord abhors and he hates the bloodthirsty and violent man. You get an idea that God doesn't deal lightly with these things. These are very strong statements. Is it any wonder, then, that he saw fit to put an end to Nineveh unless they should repent of their evil? And think about this as well. If the Lord saw fit to pronounce judgment against the Assyrians for the violence they committed, what do you suppose his attitude towards the United States must be with its widespread slaughter of innocents through abortion? Nearly 700,000 unborn children aborted every year, killed in their mother's womb. About 50 to 60 million total since 1973. We, it's easy for us to look back at the Assyrians and say, well, how terrible they were for what they did. But do you know that what happens to an unborn child through abortion is very similar? The severing of limbs, decapitation, chemical burnings. And what's happening inside the womb in abortion is not all that different than what we see here depicted in stone. That's a very sad thing. And if the blood of a single man, righteous Abel, cried out to God from the ground for vengeance, how much more the blood of 50 to 60 million unborn children in the U.S.? We have much to answer for this, and it's downright frightening to think about. So the Lord called Jonah to go and preach to the city of Nineveh, But Jonah, it says, rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, Jonah knew all about Nineveh. He knew about the cruel practices of the Assyrians. And God says, go to Nineveh, Nineveh, uh, the the enemy of Israel. Go there, where they practice such things. (laughs) Uh, Now, what would your initial response be? Maybe a little trepidation, a little fear and trembling. Lord, you want me to go there to preach to these people who do these kinds of things? He said, no way, nothing doing. I'm booking a, not a flight, I'm booking a passage by ship in the opposite direction. But yet we learn as we, as we read further into the book of Jonah that his primary motivation in fleeing was not fear, but it was he didn't want the Ninevites to receive mercy. He went in the opposite direction. Again, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, as best as we can tell, uh, Tarshish was located on the southern coast of Spain. So instead of traveling northeast from Israel to Nineveh, as God told him to do, he went to the port city of Joppa, and he set sail for Tarshish, which lay far to the west, in fact, about as far away as it was possible for an Israelite to go from Nineveh. And again, why did he flee? Perhaps there was an element of fear, but I think more so from what we read later in the book, that it's mostly because he didn't want the Ninevites to receive mercy. Several decades earlier, the Assyrians had captured a significant portion of the territory of Israel, the northern regions of Israel and the Transjordan area, and there's no doubt that they were as brutal to the Israelites as they were to the other conquered peoples that are depicted in some of these stones. And Jonah didn't want the people who had treated his own people so cruelly to receive mercy. He didn't want these people who are still the enemies of God's people to receive mercy. Rather, he wanted the city destroyed. He wanted the people dead, and he wanted their memory blotted out. And he knew the character of God well enough that if he would go to Nineveh and preach and warn against God's impending judgment, and if they repented, God would have mercy and wouldn't destroy them. And that's why he refused to go. He knew God's character well enough that he was gracious and merciful, but he would rather have the Ninevites wiped off the face of the planet. And here we notice something very important. Although Jonah knew the character of God very well, that he was gracious and merciful and forgiving, he didn't yet know very much about the omnipresence of God, did he? We talk about the various attributes of God. There are character attributes of God, kindness, mercy, compassion, grace, these sorts of things. But then there are attributes that pertain to his nature, like his omnipresence, that he, meaning that he is present everywhere at all times. And so he, as yet, didn't have a clear conception of this. He sailed for Tarshish, thinking that he could flee from the presence of the Lord. And that phrase is mentioned twice in that verse, that he wanted to flee from the presence of the Lord. And so he hadn't yet learned what David before him had said in Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the underworld, the place of departed spirits, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. So Jonah was on a fool's errand when he sought to flee from the presence of the Lord. And he was probably thinking in terms of God of God dwelling in the Holy Land, the land that he had apportioned uh, for his house to be built, the temple, which is often referred to as the house of the Lord. It was conceived as a, a place where God would in particular manifest his presence. And so it was his dwelling place. And so he's thinking, if that's where God dwells, then I'm going as far away as I can get From the presence of the Lord. But of course, as Solomon said in his prayer of dedication when he built the temple, he said, Will God indeed dwell on earth? He's saying, I'm building you a house, it's complete, and now I'm dedicating it to you so that you may dwell here. But is it really possible? I mean, do you indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven in the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built? Solomon understood the idea of the omnipresence of God, the infinity of God's being, much better than Jonah did. Solomon understood that this was not a place where God was confined in his presence, but where God was pleased to manifest his presence. God, in fact, uh, cannot be contained by the heavens and earth themselves. There was no place for Jonah to hide from the presence of the Lord, and he should have known that. Jeremiah, in one place, the Lord speaking through him, said, Am I a God close at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? And isn't that a marvelous description of the omnipresence of God, that he fills the heavens and the earth You could travel a hundred million miles in any direction, and you're no closer or no farther away from God than you are right now because he is everywhere at all times, in all places. He is infinite in his being. Augustine illustrated this by saying that God is a sphere whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. (laughs) Ponder that for a moment. God is a sphere whose center is everywhere and whose circumference is nowhere. Just another way of saying that he's not circumscribed. He's not bound in space. He is present everywhere. We can think of, conceptually, whether we can actually ever reach the outer reaches of the universe, we can at least conceptually think of the boundary of the universe. But God is even bigger than that. There is no limit to where God's presence exists. Now, the implications of God's infinite being are his omnipresence, as expressed very well by Solomon when he says in Proverbs 15, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Putting in anthropomorphical language something that's easier for us maybe to comprehend than God is... a globe or a sphere whose center is nowhere, whose circumference the eyes of the Lord are in every place. That's much easier to, to say and much easier to conceptualize. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. He sees in the darkness. He sees in the light. He sees what we do in secret. He sees what we do out and open. And this thought should frighten those who do evil just as it should comfort those who love the Lord and seek to follow His ways. For those who do evil, they should remember that God sees what they do. Even if their wicked deeds are not seen by men, God sees it. He sees everything we do. There's nothing hidden from his sight. Job says his eyes are on the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. God's infinite presence, as I say, ought to frighten those who do evil and comfort those who do well. David says in Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Even in the deepest, darkest, uh, gloomiest places, the Lord is there with us. Wherever we are, we may confidently say, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Jonah should have known that his attempt to flee was futile. He could run. But he couldn't hide. It says in verse 5 that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that it threatened to break up the ship. Here we find another prominent theme of the book that the God of Israel, as the creator of heaven and earth, is therefore the Lord of nature, that he has complete mastery over all the forces of nature. And we see this in a variety of ways. First, the Lord whips up a storm to frustrate Jonah's plan to flee, a storm so powerful that all the sailors' efforts to combat it are futile. They can't make headway one way or the other. They're powerless to to combat the waves and the wind. Second, once Jonah is thrown overboard, the Lord caused the sea to cease from its raging. What a remarkable coincidence. No, it's the power of God who sent the storm and then caused the storm to cease. Third, he appointed a great fish, it says, to be at the right place at the right time to swallow Jonah and save him from drowning. Fourth, after three days, he causes the fish to deposit Jonah on dry land, all safe and sound. So even this creature obeys him. Fifth, he caused a great plant to spring up overnight to shade him from the intense summer heat and east wind in chapter 4. Sixth, he appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered just as quickly as it sprang up. Seventh, and finally, it says that he appointed a scorching east wind and caused the sun to beat down on Jonah's head to cause him to be faint. All right, so just within this book, we see all of these ways in which God manifests his mastery over the forces of nature. He is all-powerful as well as omnipresent. He is sovereign, and he commands the weather, and he commands... Um, All the forces of nature. You recall that he caused the Red Sea to part in the days of Moses. In the days of Joshua, he caused the sun and the moon to stand still. He hurled hailstones down upon the enemies of Israel on one occasion. He caused the waters of the Jordan to cease their flow to allow the Israelites to enter into the promised land. And over and over again, we come into the New Testament, and we see Jesus doing many of the same things that God the Father, the God of Israel, did in the Old Testament as He stills the waves in the sea, he walks on the water, he rides an animal that has never been tamed, right? He has complete power over all the forces of nature. Well, here it says in verse five that the storm was so strong that the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his God, right they are all Pagans, they have their own divinities that they worship. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. At this point, the cargo was of no use to them. Their their hope for profit uh, meant nothing if their lives were imperiled. But while the sailors were doing this, everything in their power to save themselves, including supplicating their gods, where do we find Jonah? He's asleep down in the hold of the ship, apparently completely unaware of the things that are going on. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Sometimes I feel like saying that to my kids in the morning. when you they know. What do you mean, no oh sleeper? Get up. It's time, to, time for school. He says, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps your God will do something to help us. Now, it's interesting that as we read on that they assume that the danger, dangerous turn of events is due to someone's misdeeds. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. They assume that this great danger has come upon them, not by accident, uh, not by circumstance or coincidence, but there's some evil or misdeed that somebody is guilty of for which the gods, in their view, are exacting their vengeance. Now, not every calamity is directly attributable to someone's wrongdoing. In fact, that would suggest that the vast majority of calamities are not. But this one was, right? This one was due to Jonah's fleeing from, from God. And take note of the fact that the Lord also controlled the casting of the lots, like he controlled the forces of nature. Here he controlled the casting of lots. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Now, up to this point, it may have been that Jonah suspected the storm had come on his account, um, or maybe that it was just a coincidence. He may have thought storms at sea happen often enough. This is just coincidence. But now the lot falls upon him, and he has to be convinced the Lord is behind this. The Lord has whipped up this storm. It's on account of me that all of this is happening. The Lord is chasing me as I seek to flee from him. I mean, how else... Um, would, it, would it have uh, happened that the lot fell on him? Surely it would have been too much of a coincidence for him to assume that it was mere coincidence. And then in verses 8 and 9, the sailors said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And now think, put, your place, put yourself in the place of these sailors as Jonah answers. He said to them, I am the Hebrew... And I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea that is raging about us and the dry land. Wait a minute. You worship a God who has made all things, the heavens and the earth and the sea? And you're doing what? You're running away from him? (laughs) Don't you know that that was quite a shock to them? And in verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid who can contend against a God who has this kind of power, who even made the sea, and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he had been fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And Jonah goes on to say, Throw me overboard. Pick me up. Hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Now notice this. How, doesn't it speak well of them? They're, they're Gentiles. They don't know the God of Israel. They don't have the moral law revealed to them in the Ten Commandments like Israel had. And they're very reluctant. They do everything in their power to avoid doing what Jonah advises them to do, throw him overboard. They are showing more mercy to him as Gentiles to a believer in God than this believer in God is willing to show to other uh, foreigners, to pagans. I mean, they're showing mercy to him when he's unwilling to show mercy to others. They show a greater degree of righteousness in this than Jonah uh, is uh, willing to show, certainly more compassion. So they struggle, and they struggle mightily against the wind, but they can gain nothing by it. And eventually they concluded they must do what Jonah advised. Now, why didn't Jonah just jump overboard? Why did he say, you throw me overboard? Probably he was afraid. (laughs) He thought, if the Lord is after me, my best hope of surviving is still sticking on the ship. (laughs) As long as the ship is afloat. Um, And he probably was afraid to just merely take the action into his own hands. And so he says, you throw me overboard. And though they hesitated and didn't want to do it. The situation became desperate enough that they finally acted and they picked him up and threw him overboard. They picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. So as they do this, however, they, they pray to the Lord and they ask, Lord, forgive us for this act. We do this reluctantly. Forgive us. Don't charge us with the guilt of innocent blood, but forgive us in this because they recognized it would be a very evil thing to do. And then verse 15, So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. This was the first time that they had prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, and asking for pardon in advance of what they were about to do and throwing him overboard. And once they saw what happened as a result, that God caused the wind and the waves to cease in their raging. They became worshipers of the Lord. And it says that they offered sacrifice. Now, I don't think it means that they did so on the ship. I think it means when they got back to land, they offered sacrifice. They made vows um, to God in an act of worship uh, toward him. And so it had all of this, even though it was a rebellious act on the part of the prophet, it still had an evangelistic effect in these men coming to know the Lord. Now, it says, interestingly, that the wind which the Lord hurled upon the sea ceased as soon as the sailors hurled Jonah overboard. There's a lot of hurling going on <laughs> in the book of Jonah. Uh, the Lord hurls the wind upon the sea, uh, the sailors hurl the cargo overboard, then they hurl Jonah overboard, and even though it doesn't use this word, uh, the great fish hurls Jonah <laughs> up onto dry land at the end. <clears throat> um, all right, so the sailors were moved by fear as a result of these things and, and worshiped him. But what became of Jonah? Verse 17, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, let me ask, let me ask you, are you running from God in any respect? Is there anything you're trying to hide from him? Maybe there's something that you sense God is calling you to do, but you are resisting it. You are running from that call. You're you're pretending you don't hear him. Maybe there's some secret sin, some dark thing that you consistently practice because you, you think you can get away with it. And maybe you have gotten away with it in terms of what people can see. But remember that God knows all things. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. You're not hiding it from him. Your attempt, my attempt, anybody who attempts to run and hide is as much on a fool's errand as Jonah was. It's just as futile. And the sooner we learn to give up the attempt to run for God, the better off it's going to be for us. And we just need to come clean because we'll find no rest and find no peace of soul until we find ourselves right in the middle of God's will and the assurance that we are walking in God's will and doing nothing to resist His will in our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for your faithful dealing with the prophet Jonah, this servant of yours who even though he was called to the office of prophet, was a flawed man, like each of us are flawed. And yet, Lord, you were pleased to use him in spite of his flaws. And, Lord, we pray that despite our misgivings and despite our attempts to evade your call, um, our attempts, Lord, to hide our secret sins, we pray, Father, that in spite of this, you would call us to greater faithfulness and obedience and that you would be pleased to use us, Father, to further your will to make the gospel known, to be a faithful servant to you in the callings which you have given to us. We thank you for your great mercy. And, Father, we pray that you would give us such open and generous hearts that we would never begrudge the mercy that you show to others as, as Jonah, Lord, begrudge the mercy you wish to show the Ninevites. Our Father, we love you. We thank you for your kindness. May you help us to glorify you in all that we say and do in every moment of our life. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we prepare to sing our closing hymn. You will find it on page 788. Now thank we all our God. I know this wasn't really a Thanksgiving sermon, but it is uh, looking towards Thanksgiving weekend, and so it's appropriate that we uh, continue in our worship of God. grace of our Lord Jesus Christ.